DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha, presents Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. Pope Francis, in his encyclical letter, Lumen Fidei, The Light of Faith, said that faith's past, the act of Jesus' love which brought new life to the world, comes down to us through the memory of others, witnesses, and is kept alive in that one remembering subject, which is the Church. The Church is a mother who teaches us to speak the language of faith. In that spirit, this series of conversations with Archbishop Lucas brings the many aspects of the Catholic faith and why it matters, not only to the individual, but also to families, communities, and the world at large. Why it matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the Church, is one of the principal documents of the Second Vatican Council. This dogmatic constitution was promulgated by Pope Paul VI on the 21st of November, 1964, following approval by the assembled bishops by a vote of 2,151 to 5. As is customary with significant Roman Catholic Church documents, it is known by its incipit, Lumen Gentium, Latin for Light of the Nations. The eight chapters of the document can be paired thematically. Chapters 1 and 2 treat the Church's nature and historical existence. Chapters 3 and 4 treat different roles in the Church. Chapters 5 and 6 treat holiness and religious life, while chapters 7 and 8 discuss the saints and Mary. The Dogmatic Constitution on the Church Lumen Gentium 1. Christ is the light of nations. Because this is so, the sacred synod gathered together in the Holy Spirit eagerly desires, by proclaiming the gospel to every creature, to bring the light of Christ to all men, a light brightly visible on the countenance of the Church. Since the Church is in Christ, like a sacrament or as a sign and instrument, both of a very closely knit union with God, and the unity of the whole human race, it desires now to unfold more fully to the faithful of the Church and to the whole world its own inner nature and universal mission. This it intends to do following faithfully the teaching of previous councils. The present-day conditions of the world add greater urgency to this work of the Church so that all men, joined more closely today by various social, technical, and cultural ties, might also attain fuller unity in Christ. We now begin our conversation with Archbishop George Lucas. Welcome, Archbishop Lucas. Thank you, Chris. Good to be with you as always. I am so grateful that you are able to carve out of your busy day time to talk about the Second Vatican Council. Again, you know, just for our, our listeners, so they know that we're not trying to do necessarily a academic breakdown of each document, but to give an overall glimpse and an understanding of what's contained in these wonderful, can we say, gifts to the church? 
It's a beautiful self-reflection, we might say, uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, of course. The Holy Father and the bishops of the church gathered to articulate for modern times an understanding of, of what life in the church means and the, the mission of the church. So it wasn't breaking new theological ground, you might say, but it was, I think, a beautiful and fresh uh, presentation of, of an understanding of the church. I've enjoyed going back to the documents now, you know, as uh, we have these conversations, to read them again myself and to really be inspired and encouraged by what was written then and what and what still is true, of course, but what I think stands the test of time in terms of the articulation of, of the joy and the, the blessing of, of our life in, in the Catholic Church. I'm with you. Going back and rereading these, this particular document that we're going to talk about, the dogmatic constitution on the church. I remember when I first read it, maybe 25, 30 years ago, just took my breath away. It had me looking at a, with a paradigm at the church I had never even considered before. And it made me kind of sad that I hadn't gone back sooner to look at it, because we need to know who we are. We do. I mean, we need to become more familiar with hope that is ours, you know, that's expressed in, in this constitution popularly called Lumen Gentium, but also to be reminded of our responsibility. So in a sense, whose responsibility is it? This document addresses whose responsibility is it to make the, make the church holy, to make the church faithful. It's, it's each of ours and all of ours together. So anyone really, I think, can be inspired by uh, reading and reflecting on this document and, and being drawn again into the joy and, and the hope, the possibilities that the Lord offers us in the church, but also the, the engagement that really is invited from us to help realize these hopes and possibilities. Oh, I'm so glad you said Lumen Gentium, because I don't know if we mentioned it last time, but oftentimes the, the name of a document, it comes from the first sentence. And in this case, it comes from Christ is the light of humanity. Christ is the light. I think we need to remember that, don't we? Right. Christ is the light of humanity. And then, you know, by association with Christ, the, the church herself brings light uh, to the world, the, the light who is Jesus. Part of our mission is to bring the, the light, the wisdom, the, the truth, who is this unique person, our Savior Jesus Christ, to bring that now in our time and, and in our place. He wishes to reveal himself to, to people here and now, and it, it's in and through the church that that's possible. I think this is where it is so timeless, because I'm thinking it was true back in the early 1960s when they were bringing this forward. It was true 2,000 years ago, and I think it's true today. Many of us would say we live in dark times. There's darkness uh, around us in culture and maybe even what some people may experience in their own lives, their own families, just this heaviness. But darkness doesn't have a power, not like light. It's very true, and it's a, a beautiful image always. Jesus came, the light of, of, of the world, the light of the nations, the light of all peoples. And we don't uh, at all uh, believe that light is just another shade of darkness. So light is something altogether different and good and life-giving, enables flourishing, it enables all kinds of things. So the coming of Jesus, who, whose coming is now announced by the church and and whose living presence is in, in, encountered in, in the church, is nothing like darkness. It's the antidote, and it's not simply the opposite of it, but it's, it's a whole different reality 
And as we might see darkness as a lack of something or a, a negative, the light, who is Jesus, is, is this great gift of, of, of the Father for our salvation. Yeah, it brings clarity to all things we can, we can literally see. I think it was Pope John Paul II, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he would describe that light-darkness motif that you can, you can go into a room, essentially, and it can be dark, but then you flip on the switch, you bring light in, and it fills it. You can't flip a switch up to bring darkness in. All you can do is remove the light. But I think of the, you know, when Jesus was casting out demons and they, he was accused of being just another agent of the devil, as if what he was doing was just an, something else, just like it, like the other, the forces of, of darkness. Of course, says very clearly that's not true, and, and, and we understand that it's not true, that he's just not one force among many. He is the risen Son of God, the author of life. And so his coming into the world, back to this document, the church's role in announcing the, the coming of Jesus and then making a meeting with him, enabling that uh, to be possible for us now. Again, not just a remembrance of him or thinking about him. The mission, the purpose of the church, and it's the gift beyond all gifts. In our previous conversation on the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy, we talked a lot about mystery, the mystery contained within the sacraments, the graces, the sacramental light. And here we are, once again, the Church Fathers brings us into that, the mystery of the church, it's not about a mystery, is it? Like a Jessica Fletcher, there's been a crime, we got to solve it. It's a different kind of mystery, isn't it? Right. It's not as though God is playing games. When we talk about mystery in our faith, it's a, you know, God's trying to hide things from us, and maybe we'll be able to find them or figure them out. Maybe we won't. It's bigger than, than we can, can comprehend, more powerful than anything we could put together or conjure up. And so it's something with which we must become acquainted and then into which we are drawn and, and can uh, more and more comprehend. We can't comprehend the whole thing, but it's not beyond our understanding uh, totally. Otherwise, we, we're just baffled. And that's not God's desire that we be baffled or confused or, or that the truth be hidden from us. The truth which is beyond us in its reality, the truth, again, who is Jesus, we encounter it in a personal way and in a way that, does, that will be meaningful for us in our life together in the church. From what I understand of the history of the council, when this particular working document, the one that came in originally for conversation, discussion amongst the, the council fathers, or can we see even debate, they really grappled with it. And that it, the document that was originally presented ended up taking on a completely different type of nature. Wasn't it because of how they were trying to not necessarily broaden, but shine a, a greater light on the nature of the church. It's very clear that we're not to settle for sort of a mechanistic understanding of the church. We sometimes talk about the institutional church. It's not a, a bad term. You might understand what we're talking about, the uh, unfolding of the mystery of Christ throughout history and, and now very really and, and, and personally in our time is the nature of and, and the experience of life in the church. So it's presented that way. And there are dynamic verbs and, and very powerful images that, that are used to help us really comprehend the church as a, as a living organism, I guess. We, we might call it that's so even not, not the best word, but we understand already rooted in, in Scripture that the church is the living body of Christ. It has the beautiful uh, characteristics of uh, someone who's alive. It's the body of Jesus. But our experience in the, in the life of the church is uh, meant to be a dynamic one, not that we just simply find our spot and fill it. As I said earlier, so much is offered to us 
uh, of the mystery of, of salvation here and now, and then also much is asked of us, nothing beyond our that we're capable of doing. And, the, and what, what we invest in the life of the church all comes back to us. Many times over, it's all for our for our good. It, it helps us unfold as the as the people we have been created to be. Yeah, it's so clear. It, it just as they begin that the mystery of the church that there's no mystery in a building even one as big as St. Peter's. There's no mystery in those type of trappings or anything. There's something so much bigger, so much more. And it's it's sad when a lot of times when we refer to the church, we don't see that brighter light. But somehow we reduce it down to something so much smaller. It's a deficiency of language. You know, that we just, in English, we use the church, the word, for the building, and we use it for for the living church. They're not unrelated. It's it's interesting that when a new church building is dedicated, all of the language in the prayer for blessing and scriptures and everything talk to us about the about the living church and the living stones. The living church gathers in church building, for example. So it's not a bad thing at, at all. But it's not what the building isn't the church of, of Jesus Christ. At the same time, you know, the, the council fathers want us to understand that the, that the church is not a it's not a mechanism. You know, again, we sometimes in common language hear about, well, the church does this or the church demands that or as if there were this machine or something, you know, that was grinding through history and having a sort of an impersonal effect on people or, or crushing people or something. So that's not true either. So it's not a machine. It's not a building. The various images that are used in the, in the document, the people of God, a pilgrim people, it's alive. It, it's a, And it has all the characteristics and experiences of, of, of a group of <laughs> sinners called together in Jesus Christ, being redeemed by him. It's very much uh, meant to be, and I, I hope we experience it this way, very much um, uh, a dynamic experience of, of life together with Jesus as our head. We'll return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. The Creed I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, and became man. 
For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. We just can't leave the church. We just don't leave. It's a part of us, and we are part of it. I mean, it's all our him, as we might say. I guess the point of that is by the idea of leaving, it's not just you walk out the door. You actually are tearing apart something, and that's why we feel pain. That's why it hurts when the church hurts or somebody pulls away from it, there's a suffering that happens within that mysterious body. Oh, the intention of Jesus, and it's the reality, is there's one church. And so if there's a split in the church, as, as we have experienced in the, in the past, or when one or other of us feels alienated or decides we're going to pick up and, and leave and not, be, not participate, that is wrenching personally and for the body of Christ. It's in so much detail in this in this document. The, the church has integrity, and so there's a way in. Jesus never gives up on us, and he and he doesn't withdraw his claim on us. We can absent ourselves from the life of the church, from the benefits of life in the church, the sacraments, for example, by a deliberate decision, by repeated behavior. The church is not a building, but it's not nothing. So we don't define membership ourselves, each of us, and we don't just say, "Well, I'm I'm in the church. I never can get out." But I think, again, more of the Council Fathers call us to understand when we are initiated into the church, what is it that we begin to experience and what's the benefit we begin to have? How do we do our part to help it be the church that Jesus has designed it and desires it to be? One of the terms that I remember having this conversation with my mother-in-law and um, a devout Catholic, was a convert, but a very devout Catholic after her marriage. But she remembers hearing the, the term people of God. That just kind of took her back because she had never thought of the church 
in those type of terms. For her, it was very much like a pyramid. There's on, on the top here are those people and then the rest of us. But in the people of God, there's this great clan, in essence. We're all part of this body. And that took her back. I think 50 years later, we've heard it, but we didn't realize what a paradigm shift that was for many people. And still, I would say, the document, Lumen Gentium, talks about the hierarchy and talks about various roles in, in the church. So everybody's not identical in terms of role and, and responsibility. But everyone is part, in the, and they use the term, the people of God, uh, hearkening back to the old covenant when God claimed a, a people for himself and designated that as the way that he would reveal himself very clearly and personally to the world, to this people first, but then through them to show his care for all of creation, but especially for the people that, that he had created in, in his own image. There's a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, but it's not life in the new covenant. It's not unfamiliar to what life was in the old covenant, especially in some of these concepts, which now are, are much fuller and, and mean salvation for us in a real and richer way. Again, we're not just part of a crowd. It's not the same thing as going into a stadium and finding your seat and sitting in it or being a voter on election day, you know, where you have your registration and you do your, do your duty. All those things are, you know, all, all good. But God has, in Jesus Christ, has, has designated this people and claimed us as, as his own in, in Jesus. And, and so we have, a, we have a status, if you want to call it that, uh, through baptism. We're incorporated in, into this body of Jesus, but, but again, rightly, called God's people. So other uh, expressions, a holy nation, chosen people, a rich biblical understanding of, of what it means to, to be part of this group, which we don't constitute ourselves, but God himself has, has constituted. So, so again, very just to play on that term a little bit, you know, in the, we say in the United States, we set this operation up ourselves. You know, have a constitution that people came together and states voted on it and, and approved it. But that's not how the, the church is set up. It's, it's God claiming us through the blood of, of, of his son. You know, we're so used to democracy, we think, well, if I can't vote or set it up, you know, it's, it's not as good as it should be, but it's actually the opposite. It's a lot better. Our status in the people of God is a much richer experience in our city or our country because our status is given to us by God. So it's guaranteed it has eternal value. Yeah, the way you phrase that, you know, he claims us. It's not something that we can do. It's not something that we merit. It's not like as though I want to join this particular club, and so I make the decision to do that. It's what comes first. He's claimed us first, hasn't he? Yes, right. And we learn of that claim in the invitation of Jesus, which often comes to us from other people, sometimes from our parents, some, some, sometimes from others, who invite us to get, to get to know Jesus, who reveals himself in the church in a complete way. Then we may, with the help of grace, decide that, you know, I don't like the darkness where I have been living, and I don't like the hopelessness, and I don't like the dead end that my life seems to be. I don't want to be dead forever. I uh, know that's not God's plan, and that's not my desire. We, as we begin to learn God's plan, I want to live, and I want to have the life that, that Jesus provides. And so he says, come to me, you know, and, and so we can do that in the church, a definite choice, a step on our part to come to the Lord, to step out of darkness into light. But it's only after the Lord himself has claimed us, died for us, and then called us very personally. Well, yeah, when I was baptized and became a Catholic when I was 19, 
I remember I lived in an area of the country that is very heavily evangelical. And I love those people very much. But I remember the shock for many of them when I made the choice to really pursue that longing to become a Catholic. They would say to me, but you can still have a personal relationship. Don't you want to have a personal relationship with Christ? As I got older, I began to realize I couldn't have a more personal relationship that with Jesus Christ like I do in the, in the Catholic Church, primarily because of the sacramental experience that I have, but in every other aspect of grace and virtue. That's the fullness of communion, isn't it? It is, and I think it's the, if I could imagine, some of what the Council Fathers were hoping to, um, to achieve, to open up for us a less mechanistic understanding of the sacraments and of our life in the Church. And I don't mean to bash anybody from, from a previous time, but to help us experience and enjoy what might have been lost, lost practically, not lost in terms of reality or the, or the church's understanding, uh, uh, opportunity for a personal relationship with Jesus, and then a, a personal relationship with him, and then a more personal relationship and more personal responsibility to the other members of his body, which, which again just helps us sense the dynamism of, of the church. What the, your evangelical friends were imagining was, kind of not to criticize them, but imagining kind of a caricature of the church mm-hmm. where you couldn't really meet Jesus. You know, well, that's, as you read Lumen Gentium, we think, well, how would you ever think something like that? You know, that you would become part of, of something that Jesus wasn't at the center of. And that's why it was important, it has been important to restate it and, and to state it in a more dynamic way that has more um, personal and experiential language. It's, it's not new teaching at that particular time in history. And I think even now still, we just lost some of the richness of our understanding. The church wasn't as attractive as it really is, as the Lord designed it to be, when there's a fuller understanding and appreciation of the dynamic relationship with the Lord and, and then among the members. There's a section in Lumen Gentium. It's in the section, chapter 2, of the people of God, where it reminds us of a common priesthood. The Dogmatic Constitution on the Church Lumen Gentium 10. Christ the Lord, High Priest, taken from among men, made the new peoples a kingdom and priests to God the Father. The baptized by regeneration and the anointing of the Holy Spirit are consecrated as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood, in order that through all those works which are those of the Christian man, they may offer spiritual sacrifices and proclaim the power of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Therefore, all the disciples of Christ, persevering in prayer and praising God, should present themselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Everywhere on earth they must bear witness to Christ and to give an answer to those who seek an account of that hope of eternal life which is in them. Though they differ from one another in essence and not only in degree, the common priesthood of the faithful and the ministerial or hierarchical priesthood are nonetheless interrelated. Each of them is, in its own special way, a participation in the one priesthood of Christ. The ministerial priest, 
by the sacred power he enjoys, teaches and rules the priestly people. Acting in the person of Christ, he makes present the Eucharistic sacrifice and offers it to God in the name of all the people. But the faithful, in virtue of their royal priesthood, join in the offering of the Eucharist. They likewise exercise that priesthood in receiving the sacraments, in prayer and thanksgiving, in the witness of a holy life, and by self-denial and active charity. That is verbiage that is kind of what I share in a priesthood, but yet I'm, I'm a mom. I'm a wife. How, how can I share in the priesthood? Yeah, here again, this is something understood from the earliest times of the church, and it's, it's been in our language, but, but not, not always appreciated. We have, have one high priest, our Savior Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice on Calvary and the power of his resurrection is the mystery into which we are drawn in the liturgy, but really in our life together in the church. But as we're incorporated into his living body through initiation into the church, we're, we're all incorporated in the truth of Jesus, and again, in different ways. And the document is, is clear about that, that there is a, a ministerial priesthood and an ordained priesthood that, that shares more fully in the priesthood of Jesus, particularly as it involves the, the offering of the Mass, the celebration of the, of the sacraments, standing configured to Jesus at the head of the worshiping community as, as our, our parish priests do. Um, back to what we said earlier, what, what this document emphasizes in a variety of ways is that we all have a responsibility and a privilege of participating in, in the mystery of Jesus in, in a variety of ways. So to offer sacrifices in our own lives in union with the sacrifice of Jesus, to mediate the goodness of Jesus to others. You know, we don't do that in some diminished way, but that's a very powerful, again, privilege and opportunity for, for every member of, of the body of Christ. And the world really depends on it. The church depends on it. It depends on it in a different way than we depend on, on the Eucharist, for example. But as, as we'll talk about in other ways, you know, as the lay faithful are, are sent out in, into the world to take their rightful place, we go as, as sharers in, in the priesthood of, of, of Jesus Christ. And you use the word common priesthood, it doesn't mean common in a sort of pedestrian sense, right. but it's but something that we all share it, uh, in common. Again, that's the that's the Lord's design, it's something he shares with, with you and, and with me in a different way, but it's, it's him still sharing that privilege and responsibility with us. We'll continue our conversation with Archbishop Lucas on the dogmatic constitution on the church in our next episode. You've been listening to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this program has been helpful for you, that you will First, pray for our mission, which is to bring authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas.